Time for episode three of Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast. And I'll tell you something, the guests are coming thick and fast. We've done Tyson Fury, we've done Piers Morgan, and now we're going into the political world, Frank. We are, with the former Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. And you brought us to one of your favourite places, a place that is uh, quite historic in your own personal life. Frederick's here in Islington. Yes, I've been coming here since 1970. Um, so what's that? That's <laughs> scary, isn't it? It's been a, this is an institution in... in uh, Islington, and one of my favourite restaurants, and it always has been. I know that you know everything there is about John because you're good friends, but what were you looking uh, to get on the podcast well, I, from him I, I, today? I hope that people will see the other side of, of John. You know, he's a, he's a very interesting man. He's a good guy. You know, he's a good guy and he's got good, strong principles, and uh, I hope people see, see that or hear that in this interview. Let's get stuck into it. Now then, Mr. Warren, this is turning into uh, a common trait of our podcast. Um, you getting all your Arsenal mates to come and have a little bit of a chat with us. Well, most of them have been Arsenal mates. Uh, Tyson wasn't. He's a Man United yeah. fan. But yeah, I've got, I've got a great Arsenal mate and a great fan, fellow fan of mine. Uh, we've watched quite a few games together. We're very passionate about our team, even though they're playing pretty badly. Well, they're not consistent. Mm. You know, we get one every other game or every other two games. They pull it out of the bag. But it's not been a great season for them. John, you, before we started recording this, you mentioned that you use sport, Arsenal, uh, football in general, as a bit of an escapism from the hectic world of politics that you've been involved in in such a long period of your life. Very much so. When I'm watching a football match, Adam, I switch off. Switch off from work, switch off from any other issues, switch off from problems that might be looming. Whatever it may be, none of those things matters a jot when I'm watching a football match and like Frank I'm passionate about Arsenal he's been a supporter of Arsenal for longer than I have but I've been a supporter of Arsenal since I was eight in 1971 but I've been a season ticket holder only since 2012 and I became a season ticket holder really because my wife said to me you say you're a fan but you don't go and I said well politics has taken over and she said you know I think both for your own peace of mind and in the future for the opportunity to bond with the kids. Yeah. It would be brilliant if you had a season ticket. Get yourself a season ticket. And I said, I think you'll find, honey, it's a bit more difficult than that. There'll be a waiting list. Put yourself on it, she said. I did. I waited six years. I got the season ticket, and I've never looked back. It's great fun. And, uh, you know, John, we all know John. He's obviously a speaker at the house and uh, done a magnificent job on that. And also now a respected author. He's booked Unspeakable. He's number three now, I think, in the Sunday Times non-fiction list, so he's done brilliantly with that. And uh, I think it's quite interesting times. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, we're good mates and I'm, I'm really interested in, in obviously, where what John does and where, he, where he's at now. And he's been uh, carving out a new career since leaving Parliament. And I think what we want to talk about today is obviously some of the things that happened in Parliament since he's stepped down as Speaker back in October and... Uh, and so part of watching our team, not so badly as we, we like other people like me, you know, what's, what's been keeping him busy? Well, off the book, are you quite pleased that you weren't in there as one of the people that he went in on? Because you didn't hold back on the book, did you? You, you, uh, you were quite outspoken with some of maybe your past colleagues, let's say. Well, I don't think there's much point in writing an autobiography or a memoir if you commit the abiding sin, actually, of the politician. Politicians are frequently criticised for ducking the questions, sitting on the fence, prevaricating, not saying what they really think, 
refusing to engage with what interests the interviewer or the other person or the constituent. So in my case, I thought, well, I may as well lay it all out there and say exactly what I think. There's no reason whatever why I'd say anything critical about Frank. Frank has been a very good friend to me and to my son, Oliver. We spend probably half our time, at least, at matches now in his company, thanks to his generosity. Um, we love mixing with him, and I think he's a great bloke, and you speak as you find. And he's been a very good friend to me, and he's a very good friend to a lot of people. And I think it's very telling that he still mixes with people that he's known for decades and from all walks of life. Hugely successful people, other people who might be less so but share his passion for football. He's not a judgmental character. He's the best host I've ever met. And so I would only ever speak positively of Frank because I speak from experience. But yeah, you're right, I've been critical of other people in my book because, you know, you speak from experience. I tried to be fair even in relation to people of whom I've been very critical. I've often listed their good points, but the media tend to focus, of course, on the more high-octane yeah. stuff, the critical stuff, the negative stuff, the derogatory stuff. So where I've said something about somebody being very bright or talented, but they don't repeat the bright and talented, they repeat the other parts. And that's absolutely to be expected, and I make no complaint about that. But I suppose my defence of what I've said in the book about people is that it has been honest. Mm -hmm. did, did, you, did you find in your role as speaker that a challenge to be able to try and be impartial and not say those things only after you, you can step down and you can obviously express that honesty? Well, I don't think I regarded it as particularly challenging to be impartial for a number of reasons. First of all, it's part of the unofficial job description that the speaker is a referee or an umpire and you know that when you go for the job that you wouldn't last more than a day or two in office if you started making party political remarks about the economy or education or transport policy or whatever you just don't do that uh, secondly of course we're in an age of transparency where virtually everything you say is picked up on not within days or even hours, but within well, it's minutes, it's, it's televised. Yeah. And so immediately people are commenting on social networking sites and so on. So if you were behaving in a way that was partisan, again, it would be exposed and you wouldn't last. Uh, thirdly, I worked cross-party for years before I became speaker on lots of issues on special educational needs and constitutional reform and LGBT rights and the fight against global poverty and whatever. So I frequently collaborated not just with other Conservative members but with Labour and Lib Dem members. So I don't think I found it difficult to be non-partisan. And I did a kind of apprenticeship. I suppose this is the sort of final point here. I did a kind of apprenticeship to be Speaker in that when the previous Speaker, Speaker Martin, was in post, I sat on his panel of chairs and my job was to chair legislation committees and debates in the subordinate chamber of Westminster Hall. And in that role, you are effectively playing the role of the Speaker. You're, if you like, the leader of the good order and fair play party. You can't express views about the matter being debated. So I don't think I found it difficult. Did I have views while I was sitting there about issues? Well, of course, because I'm a human being. And of course I would sit there and think, well, I agree with this and I don't agree with that. But I didn't say so. And in fact, if anything, I think I probably overcompensated to a degree. So, for example, you know, when the same-sex marriage legislation was introduced, which I thought was a good and civilised and progressive thing, I was very conscious 
that there was a minority in the House, but quite a large minority, that was against it, and they had to be heard. They had a right to be heard, and I ensured that that right to be heard was respected. So the fact that privately I might have thought, oh, I don't agree with this person, was neither here nor there. My job was to ensure that everybody had a fair hearing. And I suppose when from time to time I'm attacked or criticised for alleged bias or partiality, which, to be honest, at some stage virtually every speaker is accused of, I've tended to say, well, look, what the record shows is that I gave everybody a chance to be heard. What, what do you miss about not being in the heart of Parliament now? Frank, to be honest, I don't really miss it. People often say, you know, do you look back and think, oh, I wish I were doing the job still? And I honestly don't. I mean, I suppose I miss some of my colleagues... You know, I miss mixing socially with some of them whose company I enjoyed. And, of course, you can maintain contact after you've left office. There's no bar to it, but it is more challenging because you have to make more of an effort to see people. And those people who have got the day job of being a member of parliament or perhaps being a minister or a shadow minister are very busy. And so it isn't as straightforward or convenient to meet as it used to be. But if you ask me, do I miss being in the chair and chairing Prime Minister's questions or making decisions about procedure or giving rulings or dealing with disorder, I don't miss it. It's not because I was fed up with it or tired of it. I absolutely loved it from the first day to the last day. But I felt 10 years was enough. And and I don't know, Frank, if you understand me, if I say that just as a business person will tend to think in terms of numbers, money, bank balances, pounds, dollars, euros, yen, whatever it may be, politicians tend to think in terms of election cycles. And I thought in terms of election cycles. And the truth of the matter, as I said when I announced that I was going to call it a day, I made that announcement at the beginning of September. I had long ago resolved that I was going to finish as Speaker in 2019. And I think I said to the House that at the 2017 election, I promised my wife and children that it would be my last. So I carried on till the latter part of 2019 when I thought, well, the Brexit issue is about to be resolved one way or the other, or at least the first phase of the Brexit issue. The Brexit issue will be debated for many years to come. And I said to the House, look, I will call it a day, either when there is a general election called or at the end of October. I thought I ought to stay until the prospective departure date of the 31st of October. That was thought to be a possible Brexit date. In the end, it didn't happen as early as that. But I thought, well, that was the point at which to say to the House, thank you and goodbye. Going back to your sort of younger days, and your, you know, your, my mum and dad had a quite an acrimonious relationship. Um, did your mum, mother and father divorce, did that shape you in any form in, in your early days and in your thought process? Frank, it probably did. And for all I know, because you can try to look inwards and assess yourself, it might have shaped me more than I know, even to this day. At the time, I felt that my sister was more affected by it than I was, but In retrospect, I'm not sure that was true. I was very upset about it at the time. I had rather a trad, old-fashioned, conventional view that one should stick at it and keep going. And 
when first it was mooted at the dinner table that my parents might split up, I apparently, aged seven or eight, said rather naively, well, why can't we all just live happily together? But it wasn't to be. My mother was unhappy and she had resolved that she wanted to move on and to start afresh. I mean, in those days, of course, divorce law was different. It took longer. My father was extremely bitter. He felt that you made your vows and you honoured them. In a sense, almost literally, you'd made your bed and you must lie in it. And also, I think Dad felt, well, what's going on here? I'm the same person that you married. I haven't changed. You're the one that's changed. And Dad was rather unkind about it to Mum. I think he sort of talked in terms of how she'd got ideas above her station and that it was ridiculous that all of a sudden she aspired to do things very differently. But they were really very different. They'd married at the end of 1956 and they'd gone on to have my sister Alison in 1960 and then me in January 63. But Dad was pretty much the person he'd always been. My home is my castle. He didn't like going out all that much. He was very happy being at home. He wanted to go to the same destination on holiday year after year after year. Mum wanted to experiment. She wanted to go to new places. She wanted to go out more often. She wanted them to take dancing lessons. She thought Dad would be a brilliant bridge player, and why didn't he take up bridge? Well, Dad didn't want to take up bridge. You know, he wasn't so interested he was in that. In his ways, he was very it? set in his ways, and he was an honest person and a good provider. I've always had to live with the... I won't say quite the stigma, but perhaps the stigma that my father, before he eventually became a minicab driver, partly because in later life he'd had to sell his business and had to find a way of making a living, and he decided he to be a, a minicab driver. He had to do what he had, he had to, to work, yeah. but you know he was no longer able to run a business. But previously he'd been a second-hand car salesman. Now, of course, the image of the second-hand car salesman is a very negative image, and fairly or unfairly, it's often been said, oh, you know, Burke's dad was a second-hand car salesman. Actually, my father was, on the whole, a good dad, but he was not a very good business person, partly because he wasn't particularly ruthless. He wanted everybody in the chain to make a profit. He was honest to a fault. So although there is this image, rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, accurately or inaccurately, of the car salesman as someone who's a bit of a Dell Boy type, a bit of a... A sharp practitioner, a bit of a wide boy, the sort of person who would fiddle the clock, so to speak, or the meter. Dad never did that, but he was conscious that he had to earn a living. He got a wife to provide for. My mother at the time didn't work outside the home, and he got two kids to support and so on. So Dad was quite anxious. He was rather risk averse, Frank. I think, if I may say so, lots of successful business people have to take some risks and they maybe have to speculate to accumulate. They have to borrow, for example. I mean, Dad couldn't bear the idea of borrowing money. And I remember once when I was at university when I got a slight overdraft, you know, Dad behaved as though, you know, this was moral turpitude of the highest order for which I had to atone. It was a very serious matter. And I said, Dad, it's not really a serious matter. It's a modest overdraft, and I shall pay it off in due course. But he thought that this was really something quite shameful. So, you know, he was a very traditional sort of character, and he influenced me in some ways for good and in some ways perhaps not for good. How's that influenced your own attitude towards your career and how has that driven you to excel in the things that you decided to go into? Well, I don't know that there's a direct read across because Dad had wanted to be in business. He was in business as a car salesman 
as the junior partner to his older brother, and I've never had a business career in that sense. But I think the respect in which Dad did influence me was twofold. First of all, he influenced me somewhat in my political thinking. He was always very conservative, but he was very right-wing, and he was very anti-immigration and so on. And I think that was a negative influence on me. And I made a big mistake early on in sort of embracing the hard right, which I renounced 36 years ago. But that was a mistake. I can't blame Dad for that. I was 18 at the time. But I think my outlook was influenced by his, and that was a negative influence. The positive, I think, was that Dad was a hard worker, which I've always been. I've always said I've not got an A brain or anything like an A brain. I've got a B brain at best. I'm not especially bright, but I am very dogged. I have a sort of an indomitable will. I'm very determined to hang in there. I have a certain sort of indefatigability, I suppose. Never say die. I refuse to lose. I'm not going to be cowed or defeated. I'm going to keep going and get there in the end. It's what Churchill used to call KBO, keep buggering on at all times. And I had this desire to be a Member of Parliament one day, and I eventually got there in 1997. And when I was elected, I remember going out to dinner with my mother. I was a single man at the time. And I remember going out to dinner with my mum, and mum said to me that my sister had been very worried that I'd been spending a lot of time trying to get selected as a candidate in a, a good seat. And Alison was bothered on my behalf that if, after all my efforts, I eventually failed to get into Parliament, I was going to be poorer because I'd spent a lot of time and money travelling around the country and so on. And she apparently said to my mum, John's going to be frightfully miserable. And mum told me this only at the point at which I'd been elected. And I said, well, mum, you know, I have to admit that that thought of ultimately failing never occurred to me. It literally never occurred to me. I always assumed, you may think this arrogant, people will make their own judgment, that I'd always get there in the end. The idea of ultimately failing just never crossed my mind. I just sort of said to myself, no, no, eventually I'll get there. And I remember there was a, an ex-Conservative MP who once said to me, John, how's it going? How are you getting on trying to get selected? And I said, well, Fred, I've been interviewed here and there, and I've been shortlisted for this one and that one and the other one, but I've not quite made it. And, you know, I'm just keeping going. And he said to me, John, just remember, you have to be lucky only once. You just have to be lucky once. A bit like any other job market situation where you might apply for posts in different companies and you get rejected, 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 either with an interview or without an interview. But eventually, if you keep at it, you'll probably strike lucky. How do you feel now um, regarding the situation where you should be, we should be sitting here with Lord Burko? It hasn't happened, and it's the first time it hasn't happened for a speaker. Obviously, there's people behind the scenes have done their best to stop that, and it's up this matter of public knowledge and so forth. And you know, and I think a lot of us feel that's un- that's certainly unfair. Um, and I think a lot of people across the house, both sides, have said that it's, it's unfair. This orchestrated campaign to stop it from happening. How does that make you feel? Well, it's disappointing, and it's quite striking the levels to which some people will plunge in a bid to stop me. I should say, Frank, that nobody is entitled to go to the House of Lords. I wouldn't want to characterise it in those terms. You haven't got a right to a peerage. The evidence, however, is very clear 
that going back 230 years, I think I'm right in saying every living speaker has been offered the chance to go to the House of Lords. And there is a very long-standing convention that when the Speaker ceases to be Speaker, he or she steps down from the House of Commons. It's not a law, but it's an expectation. And that is what I did. And ordinarily, as I say, the Speaker's then invited to go to the House of Lords. It's very obvious to me it's politically that inspired. Uh, there is a politically inspired campaign. It's overwhelmingly about Brexit. And there are people in government who strongly disapprove of some of the decisions that I made, which I made as I thought, in the best interests of Parliament, from the chair, and there is resentment about that. And a second line of attack has been opened up with a number of extremely reactionary and deeply snobbish people who have lined up against me and accused me of bullying. Frank, I've never bullied anyone, anywhere, in any way, at any time. I was elected and re-elected and re-elected and re-elected as Speaker in the knowledge and on the understanding that I had always said at the start, I'm a reformer. I want to keep the best and improve the rest. I tried to improve the operations of the Chamber to make it livelier and more dynamic and more urgent and to increase the chances for MPs to question and probe and scrutinise the government. I reformed the management of the House to make it more child-friendly, very much more sympathetic to women seeking senior positions in the House and members of the ethnic minorities and some of the appointments that I made, which have been very successful appointments, nevertheless provoked consternation and something of a backlash amongst certain vested interests who were very happy with things being done in the old way. You know, and I embraced a whole programme of communicating with the Youth Parliament. I chaired the Youth Parliament every year for a decade. I went to their conference every year for a decade. I spent a lot of time talking to school students and universities and doing a weekly Skype session from the Parliamentary Education Centre. But all of these things, you know, involve some controversy. I mean, just constructing a nursery in Parliament, which I was determined to do, caused a big row. Uh, constructing an education centre, which is a lasting legacy and is going to enable us to welcome lots and lots and lots, eventually 100,000 a year, young people to Parliament, caused a row. You can have differences with people, and sometimes, let's face it, some working relationships, very much a minority, don't work. But the fact that a working relationship doesn't work doesn't mean that one person has maltreated another. I have, however, I must say, been very heartened by the fact that the Right Reverend Rose Hudson Wilkin, who was Speaker's Chaplain, I appointed as Speaker's Chaplain, and who served with me for nine years, and I'm thrilled to say is now the Bishop of Dover, has been very, very, very strongly supportive of me. And she's authorised me to say publicly that she's completely on my side. She utterly rejects the bullying allegations against me. And she says to me, John, you and I worked together closely for nine years. If I'd ever seen anything that I thought amounted to bullying, I would have called you out on it. And I didn't because I saw no such thing. The truth of the matter is you were trying to bring about change against some very, very stuffy, reactionary, traditionalist types. And what they're trying to do now is to weaponize the issue of bullying for political purposes. And that, I think, is wrong and offensive. Bullying is wrong. Demeaning people, putting people down, 
giving people too little work so that they're effectively redundant or alternatively giving them too much work so they're set up to fail. All of those things are the wrong things to do. I haven't done any of those things. I simply found that there was a sprinkling of people who didn't support my reform agenda, some of whom, as I say, were very, very, very trad, and a number of whom were and are deeply snobbish, who always look down on me, and they are now waging a battle against me. And I think it speaks very ill of them. I think it says a lot more about them than it does about me. But if they want to pick a fight, well, obviously, I will have to well, engage sta- with that fight. Uh, and is it standing your ground? Is not standing your own ground? Is not, being, is, is not bullying? I mean, Pretty Patel's going through this at the moment. Rightly, I don't know what the background is, but whatever it is. I mean, if you've got, if you've got an opinion, you've got a view, you're entitled to voice that whatever way, you know, however, however you feel. But I just, um, you know, I think in this day and age, sometimes this, this issue about bullying and, and the PC age we're, we're living in, and especially the cut and thrust, I should think, of, it's no different business, but politics, you know, are some people up for it or not? And what are they doing in there? Are they so precious sometimes that they can't Well, can't I think sometimes people have a sense of entitlement that things must be done the way that they say. A couple of the people that I crossed swords with were what I would call very institutionalised people, Frank, people who'd been in either the institution of Parliament or another institution before that for a very long period, and they were very accustomed not just to having their say, but to having their way. Things had been done the way they specified and stipulated, and I think probably they were accustomed to people accepting that their writ ran. And when I came along and said, well, no, it's going to be done differently, they didn't like it. I remember there was one particular person with whom I worked who very regularly said to me, no, 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 Mr Speaker, it's not done like that, it's done like this. And I would say, well, where was that written down? Well, it's not a question of written down, it's always been that way. Or... The person concerned would say, well, you can't call X to speak, Mr Speaker. He's not wearing a tie. And I would say, yes, but that doesn't bother me. I'm not worried about that. I'm quite relaxed about calling him to speak. Well, it's never been done. Or this must be done in this way, Mr Speaker. And I would say, well, I'm sorry, that may always have been the case, but it isn't a a holy writ. It's not a law. It may be a convention, but I've been elected. And you stamped your style on it? And I've imposed my own imprint, so to speak. And, I mean, as far as Pretty is concerned... You know, I think innocent until proven guilty. I've known Pretty Patel a long time. I wouldn't dream of commenting on the detail of what is being said because the truth of the matter is that I don't know. I do know her. I've always had perfectly good relations with her. I've known her a very long time. But I do think that people should reserve judgment until they know the facts. And I find it rather curious that there are people who say, oh, yes, absolutely, innocent until proven guilty in relation to Pretty, but where I'm concerned, they rush to judgment and they say, what a disgrace. People are saying X and Y and Z about him and therefore it must be true and he must be a bad guy. Well, I don't think I'm a bad guy and I had fantastic relations with the vast majority of people in the Speaker's office, in my constituency office and with staff across the House, very significant numbers of whom are now contacting me and saying, we're horrified by what we read. This is an absolute disgrace that you are being pilloried and castigated and misrepresented in this way. And if there's anything we can do to help, um, we will do so. So I do have quite a long list of witnesses who in any investigation stand ready to tell the truth. And I'm very happy to tell the truth 
and to allow people to form their own opinion. Now that you're no longer connected, obviously, to the House and no longer the Speaker, we can obviously ask you questions about things that maybe you had... We, we felt that you had strong opinions on in the, at the time. You mentioned Brexit there. Donald Trump was another uh, character that, uh, that came up, and you mentioned him a couple of times, and obviously it was well documented that you didn't want him to speak at the, at the Commons. Your thoughts on that now, with, with the dust now settled? I can say this. Nothing has happened in the three years since I issued a pronouncement on that matter in February 2017 to cause me to change my mind, but a great many things have happened to reinforce me in the conviction that I was entirely justified in saying that I didn't wish to issue an invitation to President Trump. I mean, if you cast your mind back, there was a controversy about it, and in particular, it was said by my detractors that... I was denying free speech. Well, I thought the free speech argument was a very poor argument because there's no difficulty in the President of the United States finding a platform, a podium, a rostrum, a microphone. And, in fact, it's not even clear that President Trump needs any of those things as he's probably the most prolific tweeter in presidential history. So there's no issue of free speech. He can always find somewhere to speak. The issue was... Had he earned the right, and indeed perhaps what I should more accurately term the honour, of being invited to address both Houses of Parliament in Westminster Hall, which was what was being suggested? And my answer to that is no, it's not the case that all presidents or all prime ministers of other countries get invited to speak to both Houses of Parliament. Only a small minority do. Now, President Obama had been invited. That was a consensual decision. It was something that David Cameron put to my office, and I was very happy with the idea that President Obama should be invited to speak. He was a popular president in the UK, and indeed more widely across Europe, and it seemed entirely fitting. He was also a landmark president in that he was the first black president of the United States. Moreover, he was invited to address both houses in Westminster Hall, which is the most prestigious setting in Parliament, approximately two and a half years after he had been elected president. The difference in President Trump's case was that within weeks of him being elected, it was bruited that the government would like to invite him to speak. And behind the scenes, I received a representation about this, and I was asked for my view privately. And I said I thought it was not a good idea. I thought it would be controversial to the point of being toxic. And if you remember, he had made very early on some extremely negative remarks about Muslims and wanted to impose a ban on Muslims entering the United States. So it was far too early he had made very derogatory remarks. There was a real issue of his sexism. And so I thought, no, he should not be invited. And then there were people who said, ah, well, A, there's the free speech issue, and B, there's the issue of the convention. And I've explained it wasn't in any sense an established convention that the president would automatically be invited, and certainly not so early in his tenure. And then there were people who said, ah, but the speaker is supposed to be impartial and the speaker is being biased. And the answer to that, Adam, is very simply this. You cannot be impartial as between issuing an invitation to someone and not issuing an invitation to someone. I didn't become Speaker of the House of Commons in order to have the right to issue invitations to visiting statespersons. That wasn't one of the attractions of the job, but it was quickly explained to me that such visits are organised 
with the active cooperation and support of the two speakers, the Commons Speaker and the Lords Speaker. And so one had to have a view about it. Now, at the time, the Lords Speaker said that he was open-minded about the matter, impartial. He hadn't reached a view. Well, that was his perfect prerogative. But I had reached a view, and I was asked about it by a Labour MP in the chamber, Stephen Doughty, who was uncertain what the procedure was, and he asked me to explain it. And I spoke without a text, so to speak, and if you will, off the cuff, and I explained very fully how the process worked, that the speakers issued the invitations on, and I said that before the imposition of the migrant ban, I wouldn't have been sympathetic to inviting President Trump, but after the imposition of the migrant ban, I was even more strongly opposed to the idea of an invitation being issued. So I absolutely stand by my position on the matter. It was really a case of the usual suspects. Those who stood up to excoriate me were people who got form. They were people who'd been again me for a very long time, and they saw their opportunity. They thought, oh, let's ferment a row over this. It may be of interest to you to know that I had about 3,500 communications from members of the public, which were 82% in my favour. So I got far more positive communications from members of the public than I did get negative. But yeah, you know, I mean, I will have upset the apple cart, and I will have put some people's noses out of joint. But the only way in which you can avoid controversy in a public position is by never saying anything significant about anything and just sort of sitting there like a nodding donkey, preferably in some people's minds wearing a wig in the process. And I didn't wear a wig and I didn't wear court dress on a day-to-day -day basis. And I sometimes made rulings that some people thought were controversial, but I did try to do the job in an absolutely full-hearted way. I was completely passionate about Parliament. I was not afraid to speak truth to power. I probably would have had an easier time if I had ingratiated myself with the Cameron government, but I wasn't prepared to do that. I thought it's not the job of the Speaker to be a, a craven lickspittal of the Prime Minister of the day. And I remember once Cameron was annoyed with me because Prime Minister's questions overran and he came out of the chamber and he said to me, Mr Speaker, rather irascibly, I do have a plane to catch, you know. And I said, yes, I appreciate that, Prime Minister, but with very great respect, it is your plane. Meaning, you know, it's not going to go until you're ready to go. And there was another occasion when he launched into a very long non-answer He'd already responded, I think, to Ed Miliband or whoever. And he then wanted to launch into reading a great extract from a book about the Labour Party's election campaign and how it all gone wrong. Well, he'd not been asked about that, and I thought it was an abuse. So I stood up and said, order, order, we're not getting into that. And he said, but Mr Speaker, I've not finished. And I said, well, in response to that question, the Prime Minister has finished and he can take it from me that he's finished. Well, he didn't like it. Well, as far as I was concerned, Adam, he didn't like it. He could lump it. What did, what did you think of Cameron, and what did you think of Boris? And Theresa May, for that matter. Well, Cameron, I think, is highly eloquent. He's very fluent. He's very articulate. He's very fleet of foot. He was very dexterous at the dispatch box. He could cope with anything thrown at him. He was a skillful communicator. But as I think I say in the book, I do think that David at heart is what I'd call a talented lightweight. I don't think he's a real heavyweight figure. And my main criticism of him, apart from the fact that he 
frequently showed himself to be very snobbish in his attitude to people who didn't come from his sort of background, was that he was, Frank, relentlessly tactical. So if you look at politics and you say, well, what are tactics and what is strategy? And most people would say strategy is pretty fundamental. David didn't seem to me to have a clear strategy. He didn't seem to have an overall vision of what he wanted to do for the country. He had tremendous self-confidence, partly born so of his background. And he reacted to events, and I think he thought that he could hack it, you know, that he was competent. But he didn't seem to me to have a clear vision. And he just tended to fly by the seat of his pants. And, of course, at the time of the referendum... He allegedly said privately that, of course, he would win. And somebody said to him, well, what makes you say that? And he said, well, I always do. And that was, I think, an example of his hubris. He had, to be fair, always polled ahead of his party. David Cameron's poll ratings were always higher than those of the Conservative Party. So to some extent, there was an explanation of and a reason for his confidence. He tended to think, well, people basically like me, and I'm a good communicator and I will be able to persuade people to support continued UK membership of the EU. But frankly, he was overconfident, and he assumed he was going to win, but he hadn't made a very serious case as to why the UK should remain in, and the Conservative press was, by and large, very pro-Brexit. And I think that the Remain campaign was too negative. I think it was a campaign based on fear, if you don't vote to remain, it's going to be a disaster, rather than positive reasons why the UK might benefit from being in the EU. And so it went wrong. And so, you know, my overall feeling about David is that, yeah, he's highly articulate, he's a very fluent and skillful performer, but I don't think he had a heavyweights approach to politics. Boris Johnson, I think the jury is out. It's early days. And I think what I would say about Boris Johnson is that he has proved that he's got the skill set to win an election. He was less unpopular than Jeremy Corbyn. And he managed to persuade people that the Conservatives should have a sizable majority. And that's what he's got. But there's a difference between campaigning successfully and governing successfully. How successfully he'll govern? Well, it's very early days. And we'll just have to see. And Theresa May, I think, is a completely dedicated, decent public servant. But I think she was very unimaginative. And she was very wooden. And she seemed very unable to adjust in response to events. So, for example, she called the 2017 election in order to boost her majority. And I remember talking to Frank about it at the time, I think, in his box at an Arsenal match. And... I could read the polls like everybody else, and it did look as though she was going to get an absolutely stonking majority. But two things happened. First of all, she waged the most appalling election campaign where she was very stilted and uninspiring, and they had a manifesto which had all sorts of unattractive things in it which repelled voters, so that seemed rather unwise. And the other thing that happened was that at the time, I suppose, Jeremy Corbyn was very much the underdog, and was flatlining in the polls. He was something like 20 points behind. And Jeremy actually performed better than people had expected. He was very good on the stump. And 
I can't explain exactly why voters voted as they did, but certainly the very poor Tory election campaign had something to do with it. So not only did she not increase her majority from the 12 majority she'd inherited from David Cameron, but she lost it. Now, after losing that majority, you might have thought that she would reconsider her approach to Brexit. But she didn't. She just forged an agreement with the Democratic Unionist Party and just behaved as though nothing had changed and business as usual. And then the reason why she ran into trouble was that the Democratic Unionist Party was not prepared to support her Brexit deal. And in a sense, the controversies of the last two or three years of my speakership tended to revolve around Brexit. And my attitude to it was that my job was to support Parliament and to facilitate MPs to say and do what they thought was right. It wasn't my responsibility to protect the government from the absence of a majority. And when the government kept losing votes, I mean, that wasn't my fault. I didn't vote in those divisions of the House because the Speaker doesn't vote unless there's a tie. The government's principal, biggest and enduring problem from 2017 to 2019 was that it didn't have a majority in the House. And eventually the Conservative Party turned on Theresa May and the rest is history. I think the evidence shows that the Tory party reveres its leader until it turns on him or her. So its general approach is to be very much more supportive, almost congratulatory towards its leader by comparison with the Labour Party. But the Conservative Party is much more brutal at getting rid of leaders. And that happened to Margaret Thatcher and it happened to Theresa May. It certainly hasn't happened with Jeremy Corbyn, has it? As in as much that you know, the, the party didn't really turn on him. And I think he was the architect of his own problems. At the end of the day, people didn't connect with him. I thought he was very bad in the way he led the party and he didn't deal with the racial issues like the anti-Semitic remarks and so forth. That were made. He just didn't deal with them. You're right that the Labour Party, Frank, didn't turn on him. I think the Labour Party is more tolerant of its leaders. It tends to wait longer before doing anything about it. And I think also that there was a notable difficulty within the Labour Party, and that was that the parliamentary party was unsympathetic to Jeremy, but the party membership was very much on his side. I mean, I don't want to add to the chorus of voices criticising him. I mean, it is a matter of record, I think, that the anti-Semitism issue was badly handled. And well, it, it wasn't dragged ha- it on wasn't handled. for a very long time. Yeah. And large numbers of cases have not been dealt with. They've not been seen through to a conclusion. The, the only point I'm always very anxious to make on the subject of racism is that I don't think that one party should point the finger at another party. Racism... I won't say it's endemic in society. Racism is more commonplace than one would want. It's not as commonplace as it was 40 years ago, but I do think that racism is more widespread now, frankly, than it was before the EU referendum. I think that the referendum result seems somehow to give license to some pretty unattractive forces to daub slogans saying go home to Polish people and so on. And I think that's extremely ugly. I thought we'd kiss goodbye to all of that bigotry a long time ago. Actually, I think there are problems for both of the major parties. The Labour Party has got a problem to address 
anti-Semitism. And the Conservative Party has got a problem of Islamophobia. There are quite a lot of people in the Conservative Party, for example, who think that it would be a problem. Party members as a whole think it would be a problem for there to be a Muslim Prime Minister. Well, there isn't a, any immediate prospect of a Muslim Prime Minister, but do I think that that would be a problem for the country? I don't. And the only point I want to make about Jeremy Corbyn is that I am myself Jewish and I'm presumably entitled to my own view about it. I have known Jeremy Corbyn for 23 years. I knew him throughout my time in Parliament and I am not of the view that he is in any way personally anti-Semitic. I think the party, as, as Frank said, failed to handle the issue of anti-Semitism. I think it's been very damaging to the Labour Party, but is Jeremy himself anti-Semitic? Absolutely not. And I have never experienced anti-Semitism from any member of the Labour Party, although I have, as I do mention in my book, experienced anti-Semitism from some members of the Conservative Party. Now, you know, some of those incidents were in private, and therefore I'm not in a position necessarily to give huge details, but I very much recall in my early years in Parliament a Conservative member saying to me, Burkhoff, if I had my way, people like you would not be allowed in this house. And I said, when you say people like me, do you mean because I'm lower class or because I'm Jewish? To which, without hesitation, he replied, both. But, but Corbyn didn't lead by... You, you have to lead by example, and he didn't. I mean, you know, he's the... We're in Islington, Frederick's Restaurant, you know, that's where his constituency is. And I don't feel... I, I really didn't feel he led by example. I was a you know, massive Labour supporter when I was younger. I was so disillusioned with the whole of Labour entirely, the way, it, the, way the, left, the extreme left took hold of the party and took away all the values that I think the average working man... Had. Well, I do think that the Labour Party at the grassroots often seems to feel a particular hatred towards those of its leaders who actually win elections. And this seems to me to be extremely unfortunate. If you look at the two most successful Labour leaders of the last 40 years, they are Harold Wilson and Tony Blair. Harold Wilson fought five elections as Labour leader and won four of them. And yet, for a very, very long time, his reputation was mud amongst very large numbers of people, including very large numbers of Labour Party Members, I mean, I think to some extent in recent years his reputation has improved somewhat and there have been one or two more positive books written about him. But the Labour Party was often very scathing about Wilson, but Wilson had to grapple with some very difficult issues. For a period he didn't have large majorities, in fact significant periods he didn't have large majorities, and he had to try to manage events in circumstances where his party was divided and public opinion was very mixed and all sorts of swirling tides were making it very challenging for him as Prime Minister. But he did his best, and as I say, he won four times out of five. Tony Blair, as Labour leader, 
fought three elections as leader, and he won all of them. He won in 1997 with the biggest majority that Labour had ever had. He won in 2001, four years later, with only a slightly reduced majority. If I remember rightly, he had a majority of 178 in 1997 and 167 in 2001. 2005, the majority was somewhat down. There was the spectre of post-Iraq war controversy overhanging Tony Blair, as it does to this day, and so he got back with a much reduced majority, but he still got back in 2005, I think, with a majority of something like 66, and he was never defeated by the voters. And, you know, my overall feeling for what it's worth is that I've sometimes had a sense of this in talking to Frank. Elections tend to be won and lost in the centre ground. In other words, a political party can have supporters who are quite hardline and sort of ideological Labourites or ideological Conservatives and who will always vote for that party and some of whom are on the slightly more extreme side of their party. But in order to win an election, that party has got to reach across to what we call the floating voter. And that is something that Tony Blair did do very successfully. So, you know, it's not for me to say who should lead the Labour Party. I'm not a member of the Labour Party and I don't have a vote in the matter. But I think the Labour Party, if it is going to compete for government next time, has got to win back centre-ground voters, a lot of whom have started voting Conservative. And there is no denying that in order to win next time, Labour will have to get the votes of people who in December 2019 voted Conservative. Now, that seems to me to suggest that a relatively centre-orientated approach is necessary. I, I think, for what it's worth, Tony Blair understood that most people do aspire to do better. They want to get on. They want to earn a better income. They want to do more for their kids. They want to progress in society. In other words, people have aspiration mm -hmm. to better themselves and to better their lot and to better the lot of their family. But people also have a sense of fairness. I think most people accept that part of the responsibility of government is to try to help most, those who have least, people who can't fend for themselves, either because they're not especially capable or because they've fallen on hard times or because they're ill, for whatever reason, they need help. And you've got to have a, a strong infrastructure of governmental support for people who need that help. And I, I think that Blair understood that very well. He didn't try to overturn everything that Margaret Thatcher had done. He, he said to himself, and I think he said to his party, well, we've got to keep some of that because it seems to have worked and it's popular, but we've got to improve sharply on the Conservatives' record. Schools and hospitals are falling apart. We need to invest in them. Almost literally the physical infrastructure of those buildings which are declining, and we've got to do something about waiting lists and waiting times. And we've got to try to offer more support to people who are languishing at the bottom of the pile. But he was very careful, Blair, to emphasise that he didn't want to dismantle things the Conservatives had done that seemed to work well and be popular. For example, the Conservatives had reformed trade union law so that you couldn't have wildcat strikes and secondary picketing all over the place and the country brought to a standstill by over mighty trade union barons. And 
say Blair said, well, we'll keep the trade union legislation and we're not going to try to nationalise everything that's been privatised, where the privatisations have worked, you know, we'll leave them in place. And we're not going to try to impose hugely burdensome taxes on people. You know, we'll tax when it's necessary to tax rather than for the fun of it, so to speak. And I can say only that, you know, his approach was successful. There have been certain successful prime ministers in recent years and he was undoubtedly one of them. Listen, to, uh, to finish off our heavyweight conversation, let's ask you the, heavyweight, the biggest heavyweight question of them all then. Who's the greatest? Federer or Thierry Henry? <laughs> well, I am a fanatical Federer fan. Yes. I am obsessive about Roger Federer. I would watch him play tennis wherever I could, whenever I could. So far, I've seen him play in London at Wimbledon and the O2. I've watched him play in Paris. I've seen him play in Basel. Is he the greatest sportsman of all Geneva. time for you? Well, he's my favourite. He's my favourite. Whether his record will be outstripped, other players will end up winning more Grand Slam titles than he, I don't know. I think part of his distinction is the way he plays and what an amazingly elegant and graceful, almost balletic quality he has to his play. Part of it is his sportsmanship and the example that he sets. And part of it, I think, is longevity. You know, he's now 38, approaching 39, and he's still playing at an incredibly high level. And I think that that is part of the legacy that he will bequeath. I remember once saying to him in conversation, you carry on, uh, Roger, despite having won everything that matters in the sport, presumably because you just love competing, you enjoy pitting your wits and your talent and skills and energy against your opponents. And he said, well, I do, but I must admit, I was incredibly impressed by his honesty and frankness. He said, I must admit, I wouldn't want to play on court four. He said, I like coming out and playing on the big show courts to large and appreciative audiences. And that floats my boat. I don't think he used that expression, but that's what he meant. That's <laughs> yeah. something from which I get a real kick. And I thought, well, you know, he's never going to be put on court four. But I think if he were put on court four, because he, God forbid, declined in the rankings, whatever, then he might decide to call it a day. I don't know, but I don't think that's necessarily going to happen very soon. It is quite remarkable that at nearly 39... You know, he's still as highly ranked as he is. Who's the greatest Arsenal player? I think it's just not fair to compare them because they're just different sports. Who's the greatest Arsenal player? Well, I mean, I always thought Thierry Henry was the most amazing player I saw. I have heard it said, and I respect this, and I'm more interested to know what Frank thinks. I have heard it said by Charlie George, who was one of my early Arsenal heroes, that he reckons that Dennis Bergkamp's the best Arsenal player ever. The reason why I go for Dennis Bergkamp, he said, is Thierry was amazing, fantastic player, wonderful skill, terrific goal scorer. He said Dennis Bergkamp had the capacity to get the best out of every other player. And he said, I think as an all-round footballer and leader figure, Bergkamp's the greatest. Agreed. I don't know. My early days when I was a kid, <laughs> going back to a bit, my player at the time when I was a youngster was Joe Baker, an old centre forward who they bought from Torino, a record signing. I'll go back to those days, Jack Kelsey days. But uh, that's a bit of a toss up. I think, you know, Thierry Henry for his, um, his style and obviously the goal scoring ability, Ian Wright. I mean, this, you know, there's been some great players there. And, uh, and Charlie was a hero of mine. Yeah, we come from round here. He went to High, he went to Holloway School, and I went to Highbury County School. So, we uh, we grew up more or less uh, together, round here. So, um, I may bow to Charlie's uh, 
um, much you know his experience and obviously he played he played you know and he's seen them so he knows um, better than I do but those days of, uh, of with them playing in the same team was just exceptional days where are they today where, you know what, what's going on why haven't we got players like that now it's frustrating for us there is a word I'd like to put in for Liam Brady now it's a long time ago and it may be that I've got a slightly sort of parallax view in that decades have elapsed. And also, of course, it's very difficult to compare across generations. I remember once saying to my son that I thought the world of Liam Brady. He was a favorite of mine in the 1970s. And he, Oliver said to me, well, where did he play? What sort of position? And I explained, and he said, well, how does he compare with Alexis Sanchez? And I said, well, it's very difficult to compare across generations. You know, I can't say for sure, but I remember Liam Brady as an incredibly skillful player who had a wonderful touch. You know, he could pass a ball at his best and place it virtually on a sixpence. He had terrific vision. You know, he was a very competitive player, and there was real football artistry there, in a way that some people, I suppose, would say of Sanchez. I don't know. I just thought that Liam Brady was no comparison. You think that Brady is far better? Liam was far better. Brady was yeah. He done it at every level, didn't he? No comparison to me. Yeah. Well, you think he's far better? Yeah. And I wish he was around now. I mean, all these guys. Can you imagine playing in this day and age? You know, with with different playing surfaces, with different boots that they wear, lighter balls and stuff. These guys would have been standout players today. They're standout players. They'd be they'd be magnificent players. The other thing, of course, is that. You know, part of somebody's legacy is how that person conducts him or herself, not just how the player performs on the pitch or the tennis court, as the case may be. And I didn't know Liam Brady when I was a kid. I met Liam Brady at a football match about five or six years ago, and I've met him several times since. And I've always been struck by his modesty and understatement. He's a gentleman, and he's very gracious. He is interested in things beyond football. He's not particularly inclined to bang on about his own successes, and he will take a compliment if somebody offers him a compliment, but I've never had the sense that he's particularly self-absorbed. He's also, I think, what... I would call a real Arsenal man. Yes, he ended up playing elsewhere and he's had a link with Brighton and various other clubs and so on and so forth. But I think at heart, he's a gooner. He's an Arsenal man in a way that I remember somebody once saying to me that Patrick Vieira was at heart an Arsenal man. Whereas, you know, of course, Alexis Sanchez, very talented player and so on, but he got fed up and he was disillusioned and he, he made it pretty clear that he wanted to move. And I thought it was a pity towards the end the way events played out I thought that was a shame because he had done great things for Arsenal but I thought that the end was less inspiring than the beginning or the middle John thank you so much for your time we, hope, that- we hope to uh, see you in the House of Lords sometime soon <laughs> eh? <laughs> what an unbelievable conversation thank you very much to Mr Burkoff for joining us for that and thank you very much for Fredericks uh, for putting us up um, I'm sure they'll be looking after Frank in the uh, in the forthcoming years as well now also a little bit of housekeeping for you subscribe to the podcast you can get it on iTunes and Aircast uh, and all your 
podcast places. Make sure you rate us as well because it helps us with our visibility in that iTunes podcast chart and therefore more people can come and see us on a week-by-week basis. We'll have another episode for you very shortly. <laughs>